Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In today's episode, I chat with Karen Xanatopoulos, a trained speech and language pathologist. Karen tells us about how she started working out of an office that was like a janitor's closet to quietly do her own structured literacy with students and how her interest in math began while working in the public schools as she observed that many of her students with language disorders also struggled to learn math and made a connection between the two. I recently came across her book that she co-authored and really wanted to chat with her in more depth as it was one of the best books I have seen that has made the link between the cognitive science and mathematics. I know that the science of math is a relatively new term, but as you will hear, there are many crossovers with the science of reading. Make sure that you get your notepad and pen out because we go through everything from the fundamentals that students need automaticity in, common misconceptions, the importance of language to maths, how to approach word problems, and much, much more. Here is my conversation with Karen Sanatopoulos. Really excited to be speaking to Karen Zanatopoulos today. She is an expert in the science of maths and the science of reading. While I'm sure we could talk at length about structured literacy, today our conversation will focus on maths and I'm really looking forward to speaking to her about her recently released book and what she's learnt from the thousands of articles that she has read alongside her co-authors Nancy Krauser and Colleen Mass. However, before we get there, Karen, can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you were in today? Yes, it's a little bit of a long story, but I each part has its own unique and contributing part to it. So I'll start at the beginning. Uh, when I started my career as a speech and language pathologist, I worked in uh, both the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, which was a hospital for patients recovering from brain tumors, head injuries, strokes, um, any sort of brain type injury. And I followed that with working at the Chicago Institute for Neurosurgery and Neural Research. And what that contributed to my career now is that it made me think about the brain all the time. What parts of the brain were working? What parts weren't working? How did the brain integrate all of these different functions? If something goes wrong, what happens? So the focus on the brain has driven my career since then, and it's helped me understand um, not only those patients, but all of my students today. Uh, so that's really important. And then uh, I ended up working in early intervention after that when my kids were young. It was a way for me to be able to mostly be at home. So I worked with really young children for a while. And then eventually ended up working in a public school. So I've had the experience also of working in a public school, knowing what it's like to work in a public school and to have a lot of students to work with. Um, when I was working in the public school, I was definitely different than other teachers. 
And I saw that these students needed so much more than the level of literacy that they were getting, but I wasn't even allowed to say the word dyslexia in the school. Yeah. So I had to hide and kind of quietly do my own structured literacy with students. And um, speech pathologists are not exactly revered as much as maybe some people in a school. So my office was actually like a janitor's closet uh, on the second floor and <laughs> hidden away. But my students would come running up to my room because they loved that they could actually learn. And they, <laughs> they were relieved when I was teaching them in this structured way they're like, oh my gosh, I can do this. And they they loved it. Yeah. And then I started noticing when I was working with these students that hmm, all of these kids who have these language issues, they also struggle with math. So then I started playing around with that a little bit. And again, I had to, I couldn't publicly announce that I was starting to help kids with math, mm. but I did. And and I started understanding how much the language impacted their learning of math, as well as um, their just understanding of the math. So then a superintendent came along and slashed the special education budget, and I was the last hired, so I was the first fired, and I was standing there thinking, now what? And I started a private practice, and eventually I ended up working with the University of Chicago in their Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And I got a National Science Foundation grant to study the problems of teaching math. Mm -hmm. So my interest in this interplay of language and math and kids with dyslexia and math, um, what is that all about? So I got this grant and part of the grant was talking to teachers and administrators and parents all across the country, all across the United States. And there were some very consistent themes, one of which was how hard it is to teach math for teachers, particularly, um, I don't know how it is in Australia, but here are elementary teachers through grade five. They're not specifically trained in math. They might have mm -hmm. one math class um, in their education and then that's it. And basically the curriculum, yes. And they're said here, teach this curriculum. And so, Many teachers were very anxious about math, were frustrated by the range of ability in their classrooms, had no way of really figuring out how to reach the full range of kids in math in their classroom. And then for I also went to schools that specialized in dyslexia and those teachers, they had a hard time retaining those teachers because they were so frustrated trying to teach math to these kids and they mm. just didn't know how to do it. It was so hard. And then the other part of the grant was just reading a lot of research and a lot of books and reaching out to researchers. And one of the people that I reached out to was Nancy Krasa, who had in 2009 written the book, Number Sense and Number Nonsense, The Challenges of Learning Math. And I asked her if she would talk with me and she agreed. And we just hit it off. We could not yeah. stop talking. We had all these common interests. So we started presenting at some conferences. And then she asked if I would write a second book with her that would cover all of the cognitive research and how children learn math and try to get that information to teachers. You have the silo in universities of the cognitive research, and then you have the silos of education and education research, and they don't mix very much. 
And so yeah. the idea was, can we build a bridge between all of this rich cognitive research and try to get it into the hands of teachers? So then we invited Colleen Moss to join us, who is a math methods professor, but has also been a classroom teacher. So we put together this team, read worked so hard on writing this book. Oh my goodness. Um, Read thousands of articles and then got this book out in late October. Yeah. It's uh, and and it's a a fabulous book for those that, that don't know the title of the book is how children learn math, the science of math learning in research and practice. Um, I just want to yeah go back to a couple of things there. And one of the, a a theme that I've noticed across a lot of the uh, people that I've spoken to is how often speech pathologists are involved in the early stages of schools um, starting to implement, you know, more structured literacy or, uh, you know, focused on on structured mathematics in different ways. Um, but, yeah, speech is uh, uh, very often involved in those early stages. Um, what? Why do you think the reasons behind that might be? That's a really great question, and I think there's a divide. So um, for the speech pathologists who really start investigating reading, they realize that it's so much more than reading, that it's all about sounds and it's about speech first. And this goes for the math as well, right? Kids first learn to count. It's verbal first. We learn to speak first. And really speech is made up of sounds and we have to process those sounds, whether it's regular English or whether it's math language. And so if you're really interested in those sounds, then you can see how it all comes back to those sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not something that um, somebody else might think about as much. And so it can be that the speech pathologist then, because they understand the big role of sounds, processing sound words, language, that it's all such a part of reading. When I was in the schools, the director of special education would look at me and say, well, what does speech have to do with reading? Like, oh gosh, (laughs) it's really everything. All of our words are made up of sounds and we have to sequence those sounds. We have to process the sounds. The sounds have meaning. The meaning changes with the sounds. So it's just an interesting start. Yeah, and and I've mentioned to you before, um, as we're getting ready for this podcast, uh, that many of my listeners will be familiar with the reading rope and, and they've kind of come from the science of reading um first and now they're starting to ask questions about what does that look like in mathematics are you able to describe what the strands might be for mathematics if we were kind of um to use that analogy of of a rope yes and i it's a really fantastic question i i'd like to answer it in two parts the first part i'd like to answer why the reading rope is so important for math Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to talk about what would be in addition to that math rope. So there's some really interesting things. So the reading rope, the one part of it is word recognition. And part of that is your phonological awareness, phonological meaning your sounds. How aware are you of those sounds? Um, And for kids who struggle with that, they're going to have trouble with reading. But this is very interesting. One of the strongest predictors of later math success, believe it or not, is phonological awareness. Mm. So kids have to be able to process the words in math as well, including our number names. So many children, they might be able to um, sort of be able to just say a verbal sequence, but they, even there, it might just sound like all one big 
group of letters, kind of like mm. LMNOP. Some mm. kids think that's all like one letter. Um, so that ability to, uh, to process sounds is really important. And our, our math, um, our English language of math is very complex. It's very difficult phonologically. So if you like just an example, if you think about the word fourth, and our listeners might not be able to hear that I said as a fraction or a decimal fourth with a th at the end. It's actually mm -hmm. really hard to process. Um, the difference between 13 and 30, there's just a little n sound. And even kids into the third grade can have trouble processing that sound. So mm. we have to have the phonological awareness. It's a big predictor for math. Um, and then in addition to that, of course, is the decoding and sight recognition, but you have to have that for numbers and letters. And I haven't even gotten into the fact yet that so much of math today is taught through reading. So yep. you open up a kindergarten math book and there are word problems. You look at standardized tests in first grade and second grade, it's almost all word problems. So you have to have that decoding ability to be able to do math with the way math is taught today. Um, and then you look at the other part, the language comprehension part of the reading rope, um, yep. background knowledge, incredibly important. How much background do children have with numbers and counting and playing with numbers at home, um, vocabulary. Uh, vocabulary going into kindergarten is also a very strong predictor of later math success. Um, you look at language structures and you think about the importance of syntax and semantics in math, and there is a mm. lot. So mm. if you think about it, you know, one, that, one that's really easy to understand is if uh, a teacher says, well, um, two... Um, or eight take away two versus two from eight. So if you go two from eight, you're actually, it's a syntactical problem and kids will often write it as two minus eight. So there's all of the, all of that in there. Yeah. Um, and I'll skip through, obviously the verbal reasoning and knowledge is really important. But in terms of if we were gonna then add on to that, um, to make a math rope, I would say the first and most important part would be developing a mental number line. And so, and that does use a different part of the brain than all of everything we've talked about before. So if we think about our brain structures and phonological awareness and speech and vocabulary and all of that, that's all in your frontal and temporal lobes and that sort of thing. But we kids really need to develop a mental number line uh, in their brain, and that's in the parietal lobe of their brain. Um, and they need to be able to go forward and backward with that mental number line. And there is so much research to show how important that is. But it's not, if you look at any curriculum that I'm aware of, that I've seen here, there's really not much about developing that mental number line. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a really important part. And you have to Part of it is understanding the relationship of 10 to the rest of all of the numbers um, and the base 10 concepts. We talk about that in curriculums today, but what does that really mean in terms of that mental number line? Um, we have a base 10 system of math, but the you can learn to think in a much deeper way uh, in terms of the base 10 system by developing that mental number line. And you would just be shocked 
how many children actually don't have a very strong mental number line. I have mm-hmm. third graders and sixth graders who don't even know how to get to 10. They can't do seven and three is 10. They don't know those two number combinations to 10, much less taking away from 10 or understand that 20 really means two tens. They don't have that sense. I've taken high school kids who have a very weak mental number line, develop it within them, and then they go on and they do very well. So developing that mental number line is really important. I have kids draw number lines. I have kids place numbers on a number line. There's so much research that says with increasing age, you can ask a child to place a certain number um, on a number line and do they know where it would be? And so that's a huge strand for um, the math rope. Another part that I would include that's really important um, in that rope is the use of fingers. So uh, when they do studies of the brain, um, while even high-level mathematicians are doing calculations, the finger part of their brain still lights up. So if you think about our fingers, we have 10 fingers. It's our first number line. And there are kids who struggle to use their fingers. Um, There are teachers who will tell their students, don't use your fingers. It's like, no, no, really use their fingers. They can use their fingers. (laughs) Please let them use their fingers until they don't need them anymore. I don't want kids counting on their fingers forever by any means, but it's a really important part of their learning math. So fingers is another part. Another strand of the math rope would be visual spatial skills. So the visual spatial skills, we have two chapters in our book on visual spatial skills and the amount of research that has been done to connect the importance of visual spatial skills to math. There are so many articles and there are some gender differences. So there are some male advantages, even from infancy um, where they do these studies and they see that the organization of visual spatial skills is different. So developing them for both um, uh, boys and girls is really important. Um, and kids don't play as much, um, if they're on their devices more and they're not building things, they're not drawing things, they're not doing puzzles as much. There's a real risk there. Um, and not just a risk, but a problem in not developing these skills. Uh, and there are many aspects to visual spatial skills. We could go into it more later if you wanted to, but, um, but developing those, uh, visual spatial skills, is really important, so much so that um, if you look at how children in kindergarten build with blocks, it is predictive of their high school math courses that they select, Mm. as well as the grades that they're going to get and careers that they might go into. So the more complex a structure you can build with balance and, and tall structures, those complex tall structures are going to be very indicative of how far children will actually go in math. Um, and if we get into the visual spatial skills later, I can talk much more about how to develop those. Um, it's both in two dimension, you know, flat drawing, as well as in three dimension, building with things and that sort of thing. And being able to see um, 3D objects rotate and move in space. Um, but developing both those two-dimensional and three-dimensional skills is another part of the rope. Um, And then 
And another big part is cognitive skills. So you've got uh, some of the skills that are most important are executive functioning, uh, memory, working memory, and attention. And then another strand would be mathematical thinking. And this is so important. So it's not just doing procedures and getting an answer, but it's really being able to use mathematical reasoning uh, to be able to come to an answer and to understand why you would come to an answer or to understand equivalence. Um, really, I try to avoid kids having to actually think of it just as an answer. But I, you know, if I'm doing an equation, even two and three, I'll say two and three is the same amount as five, um, so that they're starting to understand what it actually really means. Um, but I, as soon as I can get kids to be able to add to 10 and subtract from 10, I will start using mathematical thinking and not use memorization as the first um, approach to, let's say, arithmetic. Um, and then you'd have to have a strand for rational numbers as well, which is, of course, parts of a whole, which in a way relates to visual spatial skills. But then you also have so you have, of course, your fractions, decimals, and percents, um, and how does that relate to those whole numbers? And then you have your negative numbers, which requires a lot of visual spatial skill also. That ability to go backwards and then to be able to go forwards is a skill that some kids can really struggle with. Yeah, well, so um, <laughs> just look, looking at the, uh, the maths rope, I've got down developing a mental number line, the use mm -hmm. of fingers, visual spatial skills, cognitive skills, mathematical thinking, and rational numbers. So yeah, there's a lot of really specific things there, but as, as you also mentioned, there are so many direct links to, uh, you know, the original reading rope as well. Uh, when, it, yes. when it does come to common misconceptions, what are some that many teachers have about how children learn math mathematics? Yes, well, it's very complex. And I would say, I would, I would take it back. I would even take it off the shoulders of teachers to some degree. Um, yeah. Since teachers often, um, since they are not trained themselves specifically in math, um, many teachers don't have the deep understanding of math. And it's not their fault by any means, um, but they're given a curriculum to teach. And so it's often the curriculums, I think, that have the problem. So I'm going to um, give a big nod to teachers who are out there trying their very best, and it's so hard. And they're given this curriculum that teaches at a, most of the curriculums today teach at a very high language level um, that is, and it's not a structured math. So much like the structured literacy goes back and teaches sounds and teaches phonics and teaches blending and teaches morphology, the meanings and parts of words in this very structured way. I think the biggest misconception is that math has gone away from teaching in a very structured, predictable orderly and systematic way. So again, if you look at that kindergarten book and on, most of it, a lot of it is words yeah. and it's not taught in order. So um, I could give an example of math facts. So let's do multiplication. 
So, you know, it will, you know, kids will be given, I see all the time, teachers wondering, well, how can I get these kids to learn their math facts? And they're given just a sheet of random math facts, all different kinds, and it doesn't really have that much meaning. So I would say, okay, just throw those away and let's teach it in a really structured way. And let's see what multiplication means. So Mm -hmm. if we have, let's say we're doing, we're going to think about twos. And and I would say, um, we're going to start at the beginning. And I would use a different language. I would say one, two is two. So we're not saying one times two. We're saying what it is. What does one times two mean? It's very confusing. But And does a kid know that it's you know, that it's actually one, two, let's skip ahead to three twos. So if you know that three twos is the same amount as two, then if you're going to do four twos, you know, it's two more and you can teach and you can think in a structured way. So you go through and you think about these twos in an organized way, you put them on a number line and then you do, and then you add the equations later on and you add the equations in order. And you do them in order because that's the way it should be organized in our brain. And then you can do it in mixed up order within those twos. But the two is always going to come second because the first number tells you how many of the second number that you have. But flashcards, they're always reversed. If they're working on twos, the two is always first, which would mean that you would have to say like, two, three times, which is kind of flipped. You have to go backwards. It's more complex and it doesn't, it doesn't really say what it means. Um, and so math is taught in this disordered, disjointed, unstructured way with a very heavy emphasis on language and solving word problems when they don't have the structure of math as their foundation. So I think that if there was just going to be one mistake and we were going to start all over again, going back to getting to 10 and then, and, you know, going from there and teaching math in a structured, linear, organized way. And then after that, you have that strong foundation, then you can start doing some of the word problems and you can start doing other sorts of thinking and um, that sort of thing. But Missing that structured piece and even understanding what it all means is it's just the biggest problem that I think that we have out there um, in math today. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that. And so I just wanted to clarify a couple of things there that you spoke about. Um, so when, you, when you're talking about doing it in a, a structured um, manner, do you kind of also mean that so say we're looking at the times tables. So it's you're mm-hmm. looking at your two times tables and your three times tables and your four times tables. So literally um, linear in that sense? Not necessarily, no. Um, I was just trying to give an example of what it would look like to do it in a linear way. I, I actually think that if you're doing multiplication, yep. you're going to do one first so that you understand that, you know, because kids will be like, oh, well, I don't know, one times three you know, they they kind of get panicked, like, oh, I don't know. But if you understand that one, three just means three and you can actually see an object. Um, so the piece that I left out actually is that I will use number blocks, wooden number blocks um, to help kids visualize number and to play with number. Um, and so I actually start out at a very concrete level. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> but um, there's a company called um, Stern Math, and they make um, a wooden number line um, with number blocks. And the company was started, uh, it was, well, Catherine Stern back in the 1920s, actually, started developing this structured math program. And then in the 1940s, Albert Einstein was aware of this math program and mm. learned about it and was thrilled with it and started recommending it to everybody. And it's actually in the Smithsonian Institute now. Um, we need to get it out of the museum and back <laughs> into the world. Yeah. And whether it's the wooden number line or other number lines, um, basing all of this arithmetic on a number line is actually a big part of it. But having said all of that, I would, you know, starting with addition, you do addition and subtraction at the same time so that you see the relationship. You do multiplication and division at the same time. So you see that it's just a mirror image of each other. Yeah. And then, but in terms of multiplication, getting back to your question, um, I don't do it in linear order. One, two, three, four, five. I usually start with ones, go to tens, um, which brings in a whole nother really interesting topic, which I'll get to counting the base 10 way but do tens and then usually go back to twos. And you can think of twos in so many ways. Twos are doubles, two are the number plus itself. You know, there's a million ways you can think about twos. Um, and then usually go to fives because children can really think about fives easier. And it's always half of 10 different ways to think about fives. And then I'll go back to three, four, and then sometimes go to nine because nine is so close to 10. So you can think about the relationship of 10 and then six, seven, and eight, seven and eight are always the hardest ones for kids to learn. Um, so end with those, but teach a lot of strategies about them. It's all mathematical thinking, but again, it's doing it in order first and then doing it in mixed up order, but really understanding what it means to begin with. Yeah. Okay. So you're more talking about when we're talking about um, the the linear um, way of progressing through. It's more about looking at um, those key fundamental skills and bits of knowledge that they need to have and focus on getting them right first before we move on to more of the, the language type um, mathematics that you're talking about, that high language model. Yes. So, and one reason for that. So the research would show that when kids are kids or adults, when they're doing just math facts, if they're doing flashcards, six times eight, three times two, whatever it is, it's the language part of the brain that lights up. It is simply a language task. The math part of the brain does not light up. Problem is, is that it all kind of sounds the same and you're not really thinking mm. mathematically. And so yeah. kids with dyslexia, Oh my goodness, they have such a hard time learning their math facts because it's so heavily language-based. Not all kids. Some kids with dyslexia are fantastic at math, but some kids really struggle with it. But instead of it being a language memorization task, which it's shown in these studies of the brain, that that's the part of the brain that lights up, I'm trying to take it from this language task and move it into the math part of the brain and develop that number line so that kids can do math based on the number line and be able to really understand it instead of just memorizing it. At some point, you can memorize it and get automaticity, 
but not until you really understand it and understand all of the relationships. Yeah. So the importance of the number line is basically the prerequisite to everything else that, that we need to be doing for mathematics. Yes. The number line is so important. And so much research goes shows that again and again. Um, but it is such a small part of today's math curriculum. And uh, I really think that that's one area that we could make a big change. You'll see a nod to the number line in some curriculums. You'll see sort of a random number line here and there, but it could be so much more robust in the mm. ideal world. Kids will have a physical number line that they can play with and number blocks that they can put in that along that number line. You, you know, you can make one, you can buy one. There are some cheaper plastic versions. You have to kind of jimmy rig them a little bit. I could send some resources to those. Um, yeah. But the, the Stern math, um, if you can manage it, the this big wooden number track, it's beautiful. And when kids are allowed to play with it, they they will start making some of their own discoveries. Um, but if they can learn the structured part of it and then have time to play with it, it can really yield some wonderful results. Yeah, um, you've kind of already touched on a, a few of these misconceptions and things that, that teachers can uh, do wrong or, or the mistakes that they might make. But are there any other ones that you see a lot of teachers making when it comes to teaching mathematics? Well, related to that would be the use of computers, um, of course, to drill math facts. So that's related, but you just see that a lot. I talked about the math fact papers and sometimes they're timed, which is even worse. Um, but the use of computers to teach math um, especially when there's no corrective feedback, I think is really, really difficult. Um, and then uh, I would say that not understanding how important language is in math, you can change a child's understanding of math just by adjusting the language. So um, and that we talk about this a lot in the book. And as a speech and language pathologist, I'm particularly sensitive to it. Um, but for instance, the equal sign. Um, so I don't ever say equals when I'm doing equations with children. Um, I teach them to say is the same amount as so that they don't feel like they're just solving a problem and they're coming to get an answer. Eventually, math is all about equivalence. So when you get to algebra, you're trying to understand, I've got to make these two sides the same. You're trying to make them equal. But kids can panic when they see an equation. There is so much math anxiety. And so when they see an equation and they're just trying to get an answer um, and they say equals and they know it's supposed to be an answer, it's a very different way of thinking then thinking, hmm, how can I make this the same amount? And if you can see that on a number line or you can see that with some blocks, um, I think that's a really important part. Um, every part of arithmetic has language that we can modify. Um, fractions are a great example as well. Um, I'll just give that example. So in, in Korean, um, the um, instead of saying like one third, uh, the languages of three parts, one. Um, and they've done studies with um, English-speaking kids teaching fractions that way, and they learn fractions better. So there's this whole wealth of knowledge around the language of math 
that can very quickly change understanding if teachers can have access to that. So part of my mission is trying to get some of that information out there. Um, so I think the misconception there is not understanding how one important language is and two, how very abstract our English language of math is, how complex it is. It can, words can mean one thing in English and something different outside of, of math, um, or it can mean one thing in math and one thing in English math language. Even our number names to 10, if you look at the number two, um, it has three meanings, uh, the number two, and I'm going to the store, and I like that too. Um, so two, two, and two, uh, four has multiple meanings, four and four, um, our um, eight has multiple meanings. Um, and then you, and then, then that's just the beginning, and it keeps going from there. I could give hundreds of examples. Um, so knowing that the English language of math is hard, and everything that I do is actually try to strip the language away as much as I can and get straight to the math and yeah. then add the language in later. So if we could get rid of all of these word problems when we're learning a concept um, and then only use them later to help us understand, um, as opposed to using word problems to teach math, um, then you're just layering all of this language on top of the math that's already hard to learn. So I think there's a, an idea out there that using word problems helps children apply it to the real world, and therefore they'll think that it, it's worth learning. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how many word problems you've read. A lot of them don't really make sense. <laughs> a lot of them don't really apply to the real world. And yeah. a lot of them are written by people without very good language skills. And so they're very <laughs> vague and confusing. And then yeah. kids will think, oh, I'm bad at math. This happened to me just yesterday. I was with a student. He got these concepts. And then we looked at this math problem he had from school. Yeah. And it was so confusing. He's like, oh, I'm so bad at math. I'm like, no, no, you're not bad at math. You're just having a hard time reading a word problem that an adult wrote that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think it's it's a very painful thing to me when I see students think that they're bad at math because they can't do word problems. And yet teachers have been taught that word problems is the way to teach math. And mm. I think that's a very painful um, misconception. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that you say that because I feel that's probably a place where um, a lot of maths development and, and uh, lessons and I guess that the structure of how we teach maths a lot is that we have this point of view that we need the, the students to be engaged with what we're doing. And so we want them to be interested by starting with the problem. And, and I think that's kind of where that, that's, that stems from when we do start with those, those word problems is we want, we're trying to get their, them interested in mathematics um, without having actually taught them how to complete that problem in the first place. Right. And I and I do think that it's a deep misconception because you're not only layering the math, but now you're adding all of this language that they have to decipher and understand. And really, I, I have so many examples of these word problems that really are so hard to understand. Um, and some curriculums, they intentionally make them difficult. Um, 
And it just doesn't, it, it just, I think, causes students to be defeated. But when I'm working on students with the actual structure of math, they actually love it. They have fun and they smile and they get so excited when they understand it. So if they can engage with math in a way that makes sense to them, I see those kids getting excited and I see them having fun and they want to learn it that way. And they feel such a sense of relief that they can actually learn math. Usually when kids come to me, they're so defeated. And then after just a short time, I'll say, well, do you think you can learn math? And they'll say, yes. And they're so happy. So I think it's, you know, it, the adults maybe need to get out of the way a little bit and um, and not be afraid that they just have to engage them in these word problems that often don't relate to their life. Um, if you're going to, you could do some real life, like really real life word problems. We recommend this in our book um, where the students can make up their own sort of math problems or a teacher can present a realistic problem that they're having to solve in the classroom. Um, they can use objects in their word problems so that they can see how to do it. But to just use word problems to teach math and then to use problems almost solely to assess math, you're assessing so much more than just math. An mm -hmm. equation, you do the math, but in a word problem, now you have all of these other cognitive skills that you have to have. Executive functioning, reasoning, planning, um, the attention, decoding, uh, semantic syntax. You layer all this stuff on top of the math. And then kids think they're bad at math. Yeah, yeah. Really good point there about how complex those word problems can be for, for students to actually understand. Um, just backtracking a little bit and, and looking at um, when students enter school. So, you know, uh, I'm in New South Wales and we call it kindergarten. I think you guys call it kindergarten over where you are as well. We but what, what sorts of skills do children bring with them um, to school when they start school? So I guess I'm going to ask you a question back. Do you mean what skills should they, what skills do we hope they should have yeah. um, when they come to school? Okay. <laughs> yes. The question of whether they have them or not, of course, is, uh, is, is a different question. But um, I would say that there's a number of skills that they should have. Um, obviously, counting is one but I'm gonna separate that out from just being able to count to 10, right? Or count to 20 or even count to 30. Do they really understand what those numbers mean? And so um, many teachers, certainly preschool teachers will understand, you know, to do one-to-one -one correspondence where you point to an item and, the, and you name it. And then you touch the next item and you name it. Um, and so that's very common knowledge. That's something that parents and teachers know. But one thing that would be if I had a magic wand and if I could only do one thing to change math for all children, I would say, um, at least children who speak English, um, to instead of counting, learning to count past 10, if they could start learning to count the base 10 way. So the base 10 way is using language, obviously based on the base 10 system of math, which is how Chinese is organized. 
Um, so when they get to what we would call 11, which is just a goofy three-syllable name, um, they would say basic, basically they would say 10, one. That's harder for our kids to understand. In Chinese, they don't have that word and as much. So we would say 10 and one. I wouldn't even use the number names um, until later on, until they understand. So instead of learning to count 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 and on, I would teach all parents and early teachers to count the base 10 way and say 10 and one, 10 and two, mm. 10 and three. And if you have objects lined up so that you can see that you've got your your basic 10 and then you're adding on. And then when you get to 20, which is an, another weird word, um, we would say two tens and then two tens and one, two tens and two. So kids who speak Chinese and some of their East Asian languages, they learn to count to 40 well ahead of English speaking children. Yeah. They start doing calculations up to two years earlier than English speaking children. And they just automatically understand um, the base 10 system of math just because of the words. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so let's say we get to three tens. Okay. The name, eventually you teach the name, the name is 30. But if you think about what I said about multiplication, three times 10, I would say is three tens. Yeah. Three tens is 30. You're already doing multiplication just by yeah. naming it. And mm -hmm. you're starting to understand the relationships of these numbers. So I would say, so if I had a, if I had a magic wand, that would be my wish yeah. um, that kids come into kindergarten knowing that already. You can still teach it in kindergarten. Um, and then of course you learn the names for all of these numbers, which you have to do. It's the only way that we can communicate about number. Um, so then from there, um, vocabulary around math is also very important. Um, kids from low income homes or kids from more impoverished homes. Um, there are studies that by the time they get to kindergarten, they've heard maybe 30 million fewer words than kids of higher income or more education, more educated parents. And so Having just the experience of math language, not just counting, um, but noticing number when you go to the grocery store or playing games, when you're reading books, when you're looking around and you're thinking about um, uh, not just number, but then how numbers might be combined, all of the vocabulary that is around math, including uh, shapes, including sizes, including comparisons. So a big part of math is understanding the comparison words of bigger, smaller, shorter, taller. All of those words are really significant for coming into math. So vocabulary and exposure to a lot of math vocabulary is really important for starting kindergarten. Um, and kids who have there, this is a really cool thing that kindergarten teachers could do. If they have kids who come in and they don't have any sense of these numbers, they can't count. Um, they've done studies where kids would play a game, something like shoots and ladders. Do you have that game? Something, do you know what I'm talking about in Australia? Shoots and ladders, we, we call it's it. It's called shoots and ladders. It's basically a one to 100 number chart. 
And yeah. you roll dice and or you're a spinner and you move along this number chart. And yeah. sometimes you'll get to a, a shoot or a slide. And if yeah. you land on the slide, you have to go back down. Yeah, we call but, it snakes and letters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid of snakes. So <laughs> I like shoots better. Yeah. But so, so for impoverished children or kids who have not had the experience with number, if they will play a game where they're trying to get to 100 and they're moving along that grid, they mm -hmm. can catch up pretty quickly. So even playing games where you're moving along some sort of number grid, maybe to 10 at first for really young children, and then moving along a, a grid to 20 and then up to 100, those kids can start learning the relationships of numbers very quick, very quickly, and then catch up. Mm, really great. So, yes. And then, of course, the visual spatial skills, having experience with playing with blocks, playing with puzzles, um, talking about what you're building, whatever it is that you're building, telling stories about what you're building with all of these visual spatial skills, drawing doing any sort of work around any of that is also really a very important part of getting to kindergarten. Yeah. So, okay. So that, that's looking at what, what sorts of things we can do before they get to school. So now they're in school, what are, what are the things that, you know, kindergarten teachers uh, really need to focus on, uh, you know, after we've gotten past uh, where the toilet is and uh, how to put your hands up, <laughs> how to line up to enter a classroom. What sorts of things should uh, yeah should teachers be focusing on? Well, I you know it used to be in kindergarten that kids would do a lot of play, um, and in this country in the United States, um, kindergarten has gotten very far away from that. There's not much play anymore. Um, and it's mostly starting to try to do some of the academic work. Um, so allowing some time, if there was any way that kindergarten teachers could allow some time uh, to play, to build um, and do puzzles and that sort of thing, even if it was just a, even if it was just once a week, having some time for that. The foundation of those skills is so important, yet often uh, kids don't get that experience anymore. Um, they're noticing it in engineering schools. They're noticing it. Um, other scientists uh, in NASA have talked about um, the kids who didn't grow up playing with all of these things as much. They're just not as good at problem solving, and they're not as good at understanding sort of math at a really deep level. So getting back to playing in the classroom would, I think, even if it's just a little bit, would be very helpful. Um, puzzles, building, drawing. Um, and then doing uh, a variety of things where children can sort of play with numbers and not just have it be a numeral on a page. So yes, manipulatives, um, but again, if they can have access to number lines, it could be a physical number line. Um, there can be number lines on the floor and kids can line up on the floor. Um, kids and they can count off and um, they can start moving around on that number line. So uh, if, you have, if you have 10 kids on your number line and then you take two away, how many are left? So you could actually physically see number, whether it's with their bodies, 
or with more objects and teachers might be thinking, well, you know, we use a lot of manipulatives, but if you do line them up so that they are organized in groups of 10 so that kids can really be learning in that way. Um, and um, definitely don't have kids count when things are not lined up because it's so hard and so many errors will occur and you're not really building that number line or that base 10 system of math. Um, and then when they start adding, always get to 10 first. Um, I've said that a few times, but if they can focus on making sure kids can add and subtract from 10 before they do anything else. And then once they can do that very consistently, then adding on from 10, and that goes along then again, it coincides with that counting the base 10 way, but now you can think about it as addition and subtraction. Um, and so doing that can be very helpful. So if if we say 1, 10, and 5, the name is 15, then you could write 10 plus 5, and then you have is the same amount as 10 and 5 is 15, and you can see it in the name there. Oh, yeah, 1, 10, and 5, 15, I know that. So mm -hmm. it becomes something that they understand instead of just an answer. Yeah. Um, so, and then you, you know, and then building from there, I don't know how far, uh, how, how deep into numbers uh, you try to get to in Australia, um, but, but understanding that it takes time uh, and it takes a lot of practice for kids to really understand what a number really is. Um, we think that if they can say it, they understand it but it doesn't mean that they really understand it. So having that experience of playing with those numbers and, um, and not just doing equations uh, is so important. Um, making those equations come last, I think can be a very helpful part uh, for developing that foundation of math. Yeah, and so what you're describing there with the, um, the having that deep understanding of the base 10 model, it allows the students to then have a, a really strong idea of that concept before having to add on the actual language for it. Yeah. You know, so the language is almost just, um, it comes a lot easier rather than having to, to learn everything all at once. Right. That's exactly right. And you, and it becomes actually so simple. So if you get to, let's say three tens and you want, and then we say, okay, the name is 30. So we have three tens um, and then you, you know, you can start doing all sorts of things from there. So you can start adding math numbers. Let's say you add another 10 and three. So we've added 30 and now 13. Well, if we think of 13 is 10 and three, well, now we have four tens and three, 43. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're thinking about it always in this base 10 way, and if you can then take a number and break it down into its parts of 10 and what's left, you'll see kids go from not being able to do two plus three to then all of a sudden being able to think in these different ways um, uh, and be able to combine numbers that otherwise would have just been a complete mystery to them. Yeah. Um, just moving on a, a little bit, but one of the things that really surprised me as I was reading the book was uh, the importance of visual spatial skills and, um, you know, how much we can predict future mathematics success based off it. 
what can can you just explain you know the importance of it and and what teachers can do to help develop it yes so i could talk a long time about this um so i'll try to <laughs> i'll try to make sure that i don't go on and on too much but visual spatial skills are complex um and again i want to remember that there are both two-dimensional visual spatial skills so that's our letters written on a page it's numbers written on a page it's a drawing on a page it's flat and then there's three-dimensional which of course is anything that has more than two dimensions so blocks and legos and puzzles all of those sorts of things and it's important to know that some kids might be very strong with three-dimensional spatial skills but really struggle with two-dimensional skills some kids might be really good with athletics and understanding like a ball coming at them and, and how to move. But then when they see a shape or a letter um, or a number on paper, it's really hard for them to process. So that's the most important first thing that I would say is to know that you have to under, that you have to divide those visual spatial skills into those dimensions. Um, so if we talk about, uh, let's talk about three-dimensional skills first, because really that comes first. Uh, a, a child is born into this world and things are in three dimensions. So three-dimensional skills are going to become first, and the two-dimensional skills are more learned. Um, letters, numbers, numerals, symbols, all of those things are learned, whereas the three-dimensional skills can come through experience. So when we think about the importance um, of visual spatial skills, some of it is the ability to see an object and to be able to rotate it in your mind and to understand how it's going to move through space um, and to understand balance. Um, so when you think about block building, if I put, if I take a block and I put another block on top of it, what's going to happen? And will, it's going to get taller. How can I balance it? What if I turn that piece? What will happen to it when you're doing a puzzle? Um, if yeah. a child is doing a puzzle and he can't get it to fit, well, what if I turn it? So if we just do, if we just stop there and say, well, what does that have to do with math? Mm -hmm. Well, if you think about, um, let's say numbers and you're combining numbers and you're going to see how they're going to change or even if you're thinking about a number line it's it there is um dimension to that uh and you've got to be able to go forwards and backwards so if you think about the difference between addition and subtraction addition you're going forward subtraction you're going backward you have to be able to mentally visualize what's going to happen in those directions and yeah. so and if you're talking about balancing equations what does this have to do with higher level math eventually you're balancing two sides of equation if i take this if i take a number from this side What's going to happen to the other side? How can I make up for that? That's just a very simple way of thinking about it. Obviously, when you get into engineering and you're building buildings and bridges or you're a doctor and you're understanding all sorts of different uh, ways that the body works, it gets much more complex. But in just terms of simple math, um, being able to manipulate things and see how they're going to change is a part of it. Um, and... Um, so if you think about um, measurement also, measurement, kids, 
kids get stuck with measurement when they just start, like if they're on a ruler, they're, they're just counting the ticks on a ruler, but that's not really what measurement is. Measurement is about space. And so it's understanding space that really gives a deep understanding to measurement. And so when kids can understand how objects are related in space, um, they have they can have a much deeper understanding of measurement. And if if what they're if all you're doing is counting, you don't really have that sense of space as much as you do if you see how far things are apart. How far is this object from another object? What if I move that object? What if I move it up or down or around? So understanding that. And then another part um, of uh, of visual spatial skills is understanding just like mapping in your brain. Can a child know how to get from their classroom to another part of the school or down their block. Some kids can do it really easily and they develop these mental maps in their brain. Yeah. And some kids are really have a really hard time with that. And they have trouble with their left and their right. They don't know left and right. And so if you don't know left and right, um, you can see how that could have when you're with you're going forward on the number line or going backward, kids who have that difficulty the difficulty with subtraction is so much more. They can't visualize that movement um, yeah. and that space. And then if you think about two-dimensional visual spatial skills, so our letters and numbers, now it's flat. And certainly kids with dyslexia can have a really hard time with those numbers and letters and symbols and shapes. And there's so much disagreement in the world of dyslexia about the visual processing part of it. You can get people all fired up if you talk about the visual part of reading. Um, and But math has the same, kids can have the same difficulty with math. Can they see, can they process those numbers in order? Do they reverse their letters and numbers and have a lot of trouble um, being able to write those letters and numbers in the proper orientation. Um, and so uh, when I work on that with kids, I take it completely out of two dimension and put it in three dimension. And I have them use their hands and write the numbers and letters on the wall in a really big gross motor way so they can feel the movement because they just can't discriminate it um, on in the two dimension. And then yeah. we go back to two dimension and then they get it. So, um, but being able to see angles, kids who have difficult, it's shocking how some kids just cannot process those angles. They can't see it. Um, and it's impossible to describe, but it's, they don't have a problem with their eyes, but they just can't process it. And so um, drawing shapes um, is also two-dimensional. Some kids can have difficulty drawing two-dimensional shapes. But then what's really fun is, is then taking a shape and then being able to draw it in the mirror image or to draw it in a different rotation and use that visual spatial part of their brain to do that. And it's another really great way to develop um, the two-dimensional visual spatial skills. I have kids drawing uh, shapes all the time. Uh, and then starting to draw 3D shapes in 2D and then drawing them in all of these different orientations. And it's a very powerful way 
to develop those visual spatial skills. And it's something teachers could do in the classroom. They yeah. can have kids try to, they can draw, you know, certainly simple shapes at first and then more and more complex shapes and 3D shapes, have them draw it upside down, sideways. Um, and then and then the kids evaluate, Did I? how accurate is it? How can I make it better? And it's a really great way to develop those skills. But when you look at equations and numbers, there's a lot going on there visually, and it yeah. can be difficult for some kids to really process. Yeah. Do you think some of that has to do with, you know, that, that curse of knowledge that teachers suffer from, where they, they forget how abstract a lot of these concepts still are for our students, you know, especially with the shapes. I think we probably assume that the kids, they just, they know the shapes already and, and we can move on quite quickly. Um, whereas like what you're talking about there is that we actually need to spend a lot more time just giving them um, opportunity to, to practice and to really understand the different kind of uh, dimensions of that shape or the different angles that they might look at and the different perspectives uh, and, and just really analyze it a lot more? Yes, it is it is so powerful. So when kids have the chance um, and for teachers to know the, and for teachers to tell the kids, your first drawing probably won't be just right. You're going to have to fix it. And so draw it first and then have the kids and hopefully the teacher analyze, hmm, how could we make that better? This line needs to be straight or these two angles. Look at how those lines come together. Um, and can we make it, you know, adjust it however. Um, and kids actually really have a lot of fun um, yeah. if, if they know that the first one's not going to be very good and the second one will be better and then the third one will be even better. And, um, you know, when I'm drawing shapes with kids. My first one's never as good as my second one either. But your brain learns so much from that chance to try again and try again. And kids um, really need that experience. And it, I, I do know one teacher who does have kids draw shapes, um, uh, but otherwise I don't see it. But it can be a really fun, powerful way uh, for kids to develop some of these visual spatial skills. Um, and it doesn't have to take that much time. It could just take a few minutes and get better and better at, and get more and more complex shapes. Yeah. So, you know, kind of building on that, but like what sorts of things do students really need to have, uh, you know, fluency in and, and that automaticity in? Yes. So, I think there's two questions there. Tell me if I'm correct. One is what do they need to have in terms yep. of automaticity? Um, and and do they need automaticity for all of their math facts? Is that mm. part of the question too? Or are you assuming that, are you saying, how do we get to automaticity? Or are you asking what do they have to have or both? <laughs> probably both. Yeah, you're probably okay. right. I'm probably asking both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There, I mean, there are mathematicians out there who would say, ah, you don't need to get to automaticity. Um, and, um, but I do think that there is, there are some things that you must get to automaticity for. And I do think that all kids can get there. Um, but 
again, you know, I've, now you've heard me say this probably three or four times. First, you have to be able to get to and from 10, add yeah. and subtract from 10. That's the first thing. And if you can get there, then you're going to build from there. Um, and then adding on from 10 is the second bit of automaticity. And then once you can add on from 10, then you can add on from any number that ends in a zero, right? That That is a multiple of 10. And so if you can get there first, you can pretty quickly start getting to some bigger numbers um, in terms of addition and subtraction. And then um, and then you do the multiples of 10. And if you can do multiples of 10, then, of course, that leads to all sorts of other mathematical thinking. And then something um, one piece of all of this um, is that I haven't talked about yet, but I alluded to with the visual spatial skills is not only being able to count forward, but to count backward. So mm -hmm. both with individual numbers, but also let's say if you're doing your multiples of 10, counting to 100, skip counting by tens to 100, but then being able to count backwards by tens. And now you're thinking also right subtraction and division. So if you can get to where you can count backwards, um, if by all of these different multiples of numbers, count forward and backward by tens, forward and backwards by twos, and then forward and backwards by fives, you're doing both addition and multiplication, and you're developing that mental number line both forwards and backwards. And so when you can start, so this is where the automaticity, I think, has to start is being able to go forwards and backwards with all of these different numbers. Um, and then another piece, kids are pretty good at doing doubles, um, especially of those early numbers. Somehow, even kids who struggle with math, often they can kind of get the doubles pretty quickly, but then being able to go back and do the half. So being able to do doubles of numbers and then being able to do halves of numbers um, and that goes for both those, you know, just smaller numbers, but then also bigger numbers, um, being able to go both directions with those doubles and halves and making that automatic. You're, you know, we're building this number line, we're building, building the structure of these numbers. Yeah. Um, and then, then it's going back and seeing what numbers are made of. So if, if we think about the decomposition. So if we think about, um, I'll start with kids with two and we'll say, well, what is two made of? And I'll have my little blocks or objects and I'll, I'll have my two block and you'll see it's made of one and one. And then we put that one aside and then you do two. And I know teachers do these fact families yeah. Um, is one way that they're called, but if they see it physically and then as they're build, they're building their tower, they're starting at two. And then you see that three is made of two and one and four is made of three and two and one and yeah. five is made of four, three, two and one. And you do all of that. And then you start trying to get your automaticity with, um, some addition. Uh, let's say you're adding eight and seven. Well, you know, I'm going to use two out of that seven to get to 10. I've got five left, 15. So you're starting to think that uh, you're thinking in the base 10 way. Um, and when you can think it, it's not just memorization. 
And then eventually that automaticity will come if you can think it instead of memorizing it. So if you think it in that base 10 way, um, whatever it is, and then you, you know, so you do, you go through and you learn all your eights and you do it in this way. You're going to take two from every number that you're adding on and then seeing what's left. But you can already know that, well, if five is left, it's 15. If eight is left, it's 18. So, um, or 16, sorry. Uh, yes, 18. <laughs> I was thinking of the equation. I got myself a little tripped up there. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, the building of the automaticity is going to come when you can do the mathematical thinking of it. Yes. So it's not automaticity through memorization. Yep. It's automaticity through being able to reason. And mm -hmm. you get to a number like, let's say, um, you're doing fives. Well, you can skip count and get your number, but that's slow. Or you can also think, well, five is half of 10. So anytime I multiply a number by five, it's half of what it would be multiplying it by 10. Mm. Multiplying 10 is pretty easy. And if I can think in half, then I've got it. Yeah. So as opposed to just doing flashcards to get the automaticity, we're building the, now we're really building that thinking. And so to, you know, the, the, what I'm really, my point is that you get automaticity through understanding it and through being able to think it. And then that thinking becomes faster and faster and faster. And yeah. you think it by being able to see how these numbers combine and by building that number line and by putting it all together. Yeah, you know, the, the, the way I kind of see it is that we've got like these um, these mental models that we start to create. And so by having these mental models, it means that we don't have to uh, memorize as many facts, yeah. you know, um, right. which which can be, you know, infinity number of facts that, that if we we're going to take it in that sense, you know, kind of like the um, the sight words way of looking at things where we, we were trying to teach the kids the words rather than you know how to how to decode those words yes. um you know we're now almost helping kids to decode the numbers and understanding how these numbers can be made up right yes and so you know automaticity is such a big topic because you've got addition mm. Got subtraction, you've got multiplication, you've got division, you have your basic facts, maybe to 12, but then you've got bigger numbers, right? You've got numbers and then, but you can do the same thing. If you can always, if you can take a number and you can get to the next multiple of 10 or a number that ends in a zero, and then yep. you figure out what's left, all of a sudden you kids can do this mental math that they couldn't even begin to fathom doing on paper because they know how to think it through. And if you really, really are based in the base 10 system and yeah. think that way, it just becomes so much easier. Um, and kids have such a relief when they can get there and kids can get there pretty fast. If you go in a structured and organized way and teach these building blocks, they build pretty fast. Um, not at first, at first the learning curve is slow and then it starts getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And they can start doing all sorts of other thinking. And then they come up with their, you know, sometimes they figure out which strategy works best for them. If it's fives, is it thinking of half of 10 
Or is it knowing that if I know five fives is 25, then six fives is just five more, it's 30. So I can get there that way. Is it thinking about it in terms of odds and evens? So you can think about, um, you know, if you're doing fives, it's either going to end in a zero or a five. If you multiply five by an even number, it's going to end in a zero. And you line that up and you see why that is. And you compare it to the odd numbers and you see you go back and forth. So different kids, I think, will eventually um, have a strategy. One might work better for one student than another. And when I say strategy, I really mean thinking. Um, but we've got to give them the power to think it and develop that model in their brain and not just go through this endless painful drill of flashcards or computer programs that, you know, when you get it wrong, go, eh, and then it's like this negative feedback for these kids. And then they get even more math anxiety and they just want to answer it and get it done with. And, oh, it's so painful. So when you do it through these, through thinking, um, I really think kids end up having a lot of fun and yeah. um, they can enjoy it as opposed to it being this task that seems um, not very rewarding and not that interesting. And yeah, yeah, really good point that you make there about how um, motivation can be drawn from thinking and engaging with what you're actually doing and, and learning about. Right. Um, yeah, so my next question is around like, you know, where does inquiry-based learning fit into this or discovery-based learning? So you won't be surprised that I would say, first, let's learn the structure. <laughs> let's get the basics down first, right? Let's really learn what these numbers are about and the ways that we've been talking about. Um, and you kids don't know what they don't know. Uh, just mm -hmm. like adults don't know what they don't know. If you think, and I and I think about this, I was thinking about this in regards to teachers. What if we said to teachers, well, we're going to have you learn to teach in this sort of inquiry-based way of learning to teach. Well, maybe there's something to that, but boy, you sure would like to have some experienced teachers teach you what it is that they have learned along the way. And yeah. I think that's true for math. If we start with inquiry-based learning, if that's the first lesson, I think it's hard for most kids. There are some, you know, fast high learners who might do okay that way, but those fast high learners already have the foundation. They already have the basics of what it is that they're going to learn. So whatever it is that you're learning, I do think that kids need to learn what it all means first. How can I think about this? Help me think about it. And then afterwards, then once you have a really strong foundation, if you want to have kids play around with it and ask questions and think, um, that makes a little bit more sense. But to start there is, I think, um, a very frustrating way for many children. And what that comes down to is kids then saying, oh, I'm not very good at math. I hate math. Um, when in fact, they might be really good at math. And that's where it breaks my heart is to see kids think that they can't do math. When in fact, yeah. I, I haven't had a kid yet that hasn't been able to learn math. Um, so I do think that one place um, so we haven't talked about word problems too much, but one of the most important strategies for word problems is to be able to draw a diagram. Um, 
But learning to do that takes some time. And I think that's a place where some inquiry-based learning could go on. How could we draw a diagram for this problem? And you get yeah. different kids coming up with different ways maybe to draw a meaningful diagram of a word problem. Uh, and if kids get the chance to try to draw a picture and learn from other kids and have some teacher input, if you have some teacher modeling and also some kids then playing around with it, I think there is a lot of learning that can go along with drawing some really meaningful diagrams. Um, but still, I would say you have to have teachers model it first yeah. um, and then let kids play around with it. Um, so overall, I do think that learning the structure, learning it, understanding it, understanding the meaning, and then having some inquiry, um, if you're going to include that, is is the order for the inquiry-based learning. Yeah, and so you, you've touched on uh, word problems a couple of times, but let's actually yeah, dig into it a bit more here. So when we are uh, approaching a word problem, how should we be teaching students to, to look at it and, and what sort of steps should they be going through? Right. Again, I might I might even take a step back and, and, yep. and say to the teachers, how should you be thinking about these word problems? Yeah. <laughs> so to and to make sure that teachers understand how much more complex it is to solve a word problem than it is to solve just an equation. Um, or to show other understanding of math. Once you add that word problem in, then you're adding a whole long list of cognitive skills in addition to, to coding and grammar and syntax, in addition to whatever the writer of the word problem brought to the word problem. Many times in word problems, the tense is really awkward uh, in word problems. I've had, I don't know how many word problems where I think, I'm not sure how to answer this question. As an adult, <laughs> as a specialist in math learning, it's kind of vague. It could mean this or it could mean this. So before I even talk about solving the word problems, to just say that word problems are really hard or they can be, I think they're way overutilized for trying to teach concepts. Um and when you look at standardized assessments, at least here, almost all the questions are always word problems of some sort. So that's sort of my first warning. But in terms of now we're going to give it to the student, um, the, the, the strategy that has been shown in the cognitive research to work the most is actually to draw diagrams but it has to be a meaningful diagram and learning how to do that is the process. So um, uh, some kids might just draw a cute little picture of a, of a word problem, but that's not it. But learning to draw a meaningful diagram is the most effective strategy um, according to the latest research that we read. Prior to that, um, there was a lot of research um, based on trying to break uh, word problems down into schema or what is the question, you know, what type of question is it? So more of a reasoning model. Um, and uh, there's there was a lot of research to show that the schema worked. 
for many children, it can be hard for children who struggle with language. It almost weighs them down more, according to some of the research on these diagrams. But so given that there's gonna be all different sorts of word problems and many different ways to diagram them, that's where I would really have teachers practice. Don't just give them the word problem and have them solve it. Really work through how can we draw this out in a way that actually solves the problem for us. So if, um, oh, I, I do this with kids all the time, um, and, and I don't have a whiteboard so that I can show you. It's hard to talk about diagrams when I don't have a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> But people are listening. So um, I'm, I'm struggling here to figure out how can I describe this? Uh, if you have, um, you know, kids will read, a, they'll look at a word problem, they'll see the numbers, they'll guess at an operation, and then they'll just do it without really knowing what they're doing. They see the numbers, make a guess, and then just kind of go. So by drawing a diagram, you can see, am I adding more? Are we gonna have less? Are we taking some away? Is there gonna be multiples of something? So you can, in, before you say what operation you're gonna do, before you say anything, before you even use any numbers, if you can imagine and then draw a diagram that shows what the operation is gonna be, then kids have much more success. It's just that it takes a little bit of time to get good at drawing those diagrams. And that's where I think some collaboration can really help with kids and teacher modeling can really help. Um, so understanding the movement, right? There's some visual spatial skill involved here. What's happening in this mm. word problem? Um, are we getting more, are we getting less? Um, how much more? Uh, and so trying to understand the movement within a word problem is really that first step. And it's breaking this terrible habit that kids have to go, multiply, no, uh, divide, no, wait, subtract. <laughs> and they just start guessing, right? Um, yeah. And they don't even really think about how these numbers are related. So the point of a diagram is to understand the relationship of the numbers, and then where is the movement going to happen? Yeah, okay. Really, uh, really good point there on the, the diagrams, because I think, yeah, like you said, when we do have that um, the word problem, we might talk them through it and we're almost going, trying to go straight to, is this a multiplication question? Is it an addition question? And um, and, and that's probably not the best strategy to teach our students to, to, to use. Right, that's right. Yes, let's understand what's happening first and let's visualize it, let's draw it out. And it's, it is so interesting that if you think about these operations as movement of more or less, and in what, you know, is, are we just, you know, subtracting, taking some away? Are we dividing something up into multiple parts? Are we having multiples of something happen? Um, so it really can take away the um, that initial impulse to guess. Um, one of the way, another really great way to work on word problems at first is to provide the answer. 
and then have children figure out, oh, well, how did we get that answer? So if you, and you take away the whole pain of just guessing at what it is, you give them the answer and say, how did we get there? Yeah. Um, And then have them explain it that way. Um, And then you can go, you can take that answer away and have them do it on their own. And you start out with problems that are similar and then become increasingly more different. So they can be similar in the type of story that it is with different numbers or um, similar in the type of movement that's going to happen. Um, And then uh, and then make them increasingly more different. So providing that answer first is fantastic. Um, it really is helpful for kids who are really struggling to are, are just some of our kids who are dyslexic and they just want to take that paper and throw it across the room. Um, if we give them the answer first, it can take a lot of that pain away as well. So it's also a pain uh, saving device. Um, and you know, uh, another aspect of word problems that leaked in is having irrelevant information included in word problems so that kids can decipher, you know, supposedly reason through. Um, and maybe having a problem or two with some irrelevant information after you've really learned how to solve a more straightforward problem yeah. would require that higher level of reasoning. But in terms of real life, I often struggle to think, well, how many times in real life do I have irrelevant information that I need to um, separate out from what it is that I'm using math for? Um, and it's it's just harder to understand that. So, you know, for teachers, too, if kids are struggling, just at first rewrite the problems without the irrelevant information figure out how to get there, then add that irrelevant information. And then you can kind of make a joke about it and be like, ah, do we need that information? You know, Mm -hmm. you can make it a little bit more entertaining instead of more of like testing a kid to see if they get that it's irrelevant. Um, So there are so many aspects to word problems that are challenging. Um, And then when we add in that extra information um, just to see if kids will catch it, um, I think it's something to use sparingly and only with really helpful instruction. Yeah, I, I, um, I found personally the, um, the example problem pairs that you described there where, where you've got the, um, the word problem and then you give the students a really similar one um, to work on alongside of the one that you've just modelled as being really important step that teachers um, need to make because a lot of the times we will model you know a a question and how to how to answer it and then give them almost a completely different question that they've then got to do yeah and it's it's just still you know that they they can't make that link between what you've just shown them and what they now need to do because we've changed so much of that question even though in our heads it's still getting them to do the same process for them they're looking at a completely different thing that's that's exactly right. So going in those steps, building, having small changes, and then eventually, I think it's very powerful for children to write their own word problems. And that can be a way for them to understand the structure of the word problem as well, and then give it to their 
you know, give it to a partner and see if their partner can figure it out. And um, did they include everything they needed to include? And But it helps them think about the structure of a word problem in a way that's very different than an adult giving them one. So you could have a, one way to do it would be the teacher models one, and then the children write their own based on that. And then they solve another one uh, based in that same model, but then start making those gradual changes so that they can think about it in both ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, it's been such a great conversation today and, and I, I could talk to you for hours about all this stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've just got a couple more questions before we wrap it up. So this one here is probably around like the curriculum and, and scope and sequence, but you've got the you know, on one side where, you know, you look at, um, you know, say we're going to do a unit on addition and subtraction, then we're going to go on to um, uh, geometry or whatever it is. And and so we're looking at it in, in terms of uh, a concept, whereas then you've also got like the big ideas way of doing it and, you know, where you might have a theme and then it could include a whole bunch of different things. What's your, what's your general opinion on how we should, um, you know, structure our scope and sequence? I am certainly a proponent of learning to mastery and getting and teaching something in a way that kids can keep learning, build on that learning and get a really strong foundation. I think from a cognitive standpoint, adults can understand a concept and think that once a child has learned it once that it's going to stick. Um, or that they'll be able to come back to it and use it in a different way. But cognitively, when you look at the development of number and um, maths in the brain, it's not so it's not so simple. And it takes a lot of repetition. And it takes a lot of practice to really get it strongly. And so if a kid, if a child, or if the students are exposed to, let's say, um, you know, multiplication, and then they move on to geometry, but it uses some multiplication, um, but and then you go on to, let's say, some patterns or something, they've never developed that foundation. And it's not mm -hmm. a structure that can stand, um, yeah. withstand the storms, so to speak. Yeah. So if I if we only think about it from a cognitive brain development, what we're trying to do is develop this the math sense in the brain in a way where you're making very strong connections from a neural standpoint, we're building connections and we want those connections to be strong. And so if you only get a little bit of exposure to it and it's not even really in a consistent order and it's not systematic and then you move on um, yep. and then you come back to it, it's really frustrating for a lot of kids. Mm. Now, some of the most mathematically inclined kids can do that, um, but it's again, because they already have those connections made. Why are yeah. they so strong? Because they already have the connections. Mm. So if we just think about it, from a brain perspective, um, we want those connections built and we want them to be strong and fast. Yeah. And that requires repetition 
and it requires building a very strong foundation. I could say to, to you, if you were going to learn a foreign language, well, we're going to learn a few words about greetings, and then we're going to go learn a few words about, you know, eating or something. And then, but you, you don't have time to really build that strong connection. You're going to forget it and it's going to mm -hmm. be hard and it's not going to be quick. So build it strong and get it fast and then keep going. You can build, you can bring in other ways to think about multiplication while you're doing it, but you're still really trying to make that foundation strong. Yeah. And I, and I like how you keep bringing it back to, this is how we learn. You know, and, and um, I think that's probably a point that we we sometimes don't know well enough or um, we don't keep referring back to when we are trying to make these sorts of decisions. Uh, look, last question. Karen, it's been uh, such a great conversation, but this is called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. What other bits of knowledge do you think teachers need to have? So this might be based on, you know, things that have been um, really really helpful in your own development or uh, common misconceptions or just things that you think are really important for teachers to know about? It doesn't have to be mass related. Yes. yes. You know, I would say I want to take some pressure off the teachers in terms of knowing that when they were being trained as teachers, they weren't trained in math in a really deep way. And so I know to, to know that I know that that makes it hard um, for them and that they're then given a curriculum to just teach and that that's really hard. So one thing I'd like them to know is, yeah, I know it's hard and um, it's a really hard job. And yeah. I hope to, you know, figure out ways to make it easier uh, for teachers. So we've got this book done. Um, I really want to know how can I help teachers more? What's the next step? Um, and uh, so is it taking classes or is it having materials that are just ready to go? So that's a question that I have that I'm wrestling with right now. Um, so one, I understand it's hard and there's a reason it's hard and these curriculums are hard and um, it's hard to teach math that way. And you know, to, to, to I'm having compassion for all the teachers out there. That's the first thing that I would say. Um, and that there is a huge range of ability in their classrooms. And that's a really hard thing to manage as well. And one of the things I think that's difficult for teachers is to know, how do you teach to this range of kids in your class? You've got your high yeah. flyers and your kids yeah. who are just really stuck. And yeah. so and, and it's painful. And I know that there are so many wonderful teachers out there who want to help those kids who are struggling and they don't have the time. They don't have the resources to help those kids. So um, if you've got kids who are really struggling, see, you know, give them some number lines, um, see if they can get to 10 first. And if they can add on from 10, all of those things that we talked about, take it back to the basics and they, and don't, you know, see if you can get away from the curriculum. If you can fill in some of those early holes, you'll make faster progress with those kids. Having the time to do that is really hard. Um, but knowing that uh, that there is a way, if there's some way that you can work within your school to get some extra help to do some of that work that was missing, um, 
it's it's really hard and I know that, but to whatever extent that they can do that. Um, and <clears throat> I think that there is a growing awareness that math needs to be learned uh, in a way that's different than how adults maybe look down on math. Adults already understand all this stuff, but to understand that kids have to learn it from the ground up, from the um, from the bottom up, and not from this very top-down way that many of these uh, curriculum can teach it. So to know, to just think about that difference of top-down surface, you know, language-based way to the bottom-up way, um, and that there are some simple language adjustments that can help kids understand a lot of math with just some simple language adjustments. Um, so, you know, our book lists certainly a lot of those, um, but trying to learn more and more about how you could just rephrase it. And then all of a sudden kids can understand it a little bit better. That would be another, you know, big highlight. Yeah. Some really great points there. And I, I love the, um, the point of view that you're taking and, and how empathetic you are towards the current situation that, that teachers are in. I think it is really uh, important that teachers do know that that everyone, well, not everyone, but people like yourself, understand how complex teaching is because yes. it is really complex. And, and what we're having to deal with when we're, if we've got, you know, 30 students in front of us and they've all got different learning needs they're all at different points in their journey, uh, and then we're meant to teach something that's going to impact all of them um, at the same time. Yeah, it is really tricky, but I think you know, a lot of the things that you, you've spoken about today um, will be really helpful for teachers in just understanding how we can start to fill in those gaps, you know, because the more gaps that we are able to fill in, the less gaps we're going to have in the future. Uh, and then we're not necessarily going to have such a big range of abilities um, in our classrooms as well. Um, right. Yeah, and so it'll just be a lot more manageable and a, a lot more effective and efficient for teachers. Uh, so, Karen, like, where, wh what sorts of things um, should we look out from you in the future, and and how can teachers get in contact with you? Well, they can certainly reach out to me uh, by by email, which you can put in the notes, but it's Karen yep. at mathandlanguage.com. So that's pretty easy, Karen at mathandlanguage.com. I'm considering creating some uh, online classes. I'm also considering, I'd love to find some people that I could work with. Um, maybe you'll wanna work with me uh, to create some materials that we could give to teachers so that it's ready to go. I know that teachers don't have time to just create their own materials all the time, mm. um, but um, can we create some materials that aren't gonna cost that much that would allow them to start filling in some of these gaps and teach in this structured way um, and also suggest some materials that kids can use to help. So those are things that um, I'm thinking about. I am very happy to talk with any teachers. I do a lot of professional development. So I do go into schools uh, and I work with schools to try to help teachers know how to teach better. And I'm hoping that really died during COVID, of course, yeah. um, but I'm hoping that that will come to some resurgence as well. Um, 
And uh, so if you're interested in that sort of thing, you can certainly reach out to me as well. Um, it could be via Zoom as well. Um, but I, um, this is obviously something that I'm very passionate about. And I, and it's because I believe in these kids. I see these kids who they really are just absolutely convinced that they cannot do math and they're terrible at it and they feel terrible about themselves and their teachers don't know what to do. And you teach in this way and they can learn and they get so excited. So I'm very passionate about it. And um, I'd like to continue trying to problem solve how to make it better for, uh, for students, for teachers and for parents. Yeah, look, I'd love to explore some of those questions with you and collaborate on some future projects. Definitely. Um, we're really lucky here in Australia. We've got a uh, organisation, uh, OCA Education. And actually, I had a chat with Reed Smith um, a couple of episodes ago. And, and so he's one of the, um, the creators of the organisation. It's similar to um, the OAK um, over in the UK. But basically um, what it is, they've created all of these resources um, alongside a couple of other organisations um, coming from a really strong evidence base and uh, all freely available. I'll, I'll, I'll share the, um, the resources with you later. But, yeah, when you're talking about, you know, um, creating things for teachers, yeah, this is one organisation that is starting to fill that gap um, over here and, um, you know, with, with some excellent resources that teachers are able to just use and um, they're ready to go with, with um, yeah, a whole bunch of kind of teacher tips and um yeah, worksheets and it's got yeah everything and, and daily reviews and I know that they're going to keep filling that out. But uh, yeah, look, I, I think there's still a lot of um, areas that teachers need support in. So I think this conversation hopefully going to answer some of those questions and I'm sure um, I'll probably have a few more that I can ask you in the future. And um, yeah, look, thank you so much for today, Karen, and uh, look forward to, to continuing this conversation in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Karen's enthusiasm is infectious, and I think we really could have continued this conversation for another couple of hours. She has a real desire to meet the demands of teachers, and we've continued the conversation off-air around what teachers want when it comes to support for implementing the science and maths. So, do let me know if you have any suggestions. One of the things that has really stood out to me from all of my conversations is how we each how, is how each expert has shown their understanding of how complex teaching is and how they want teachers to take some of the pressure off themselves. On one hand, I hope you're able to get a lot of great knowledge on how to teach mathematics effectively from Karen. But on the other hand, it's a real shame that we're not able to get this sort of information given to us through initial teacher education. But let's not dwell too much on the negatives because there is so much to unpack from this episode. Here are my key takeaways. Phonological awareness is an early predictor for later math success. She talks about how relevant the reading rope is to mathematics and what she would add to turn it into the maths rope. Mental number line, the use of fingers, visual spatial skills, two-dimensional and three-dimensional skills, cognitive skills and mathematical thinking. How at the start we need to strip back the language as much as we can so that we can get straight to the maths. For example, saying three twos is six rather than three times two, and, and saying same as, rather than equals, and three parts one for a third. Just like we need to teach literacy in a structured manner, we also need to teach maths in a structured way. So we should teach addition and subtraction at the same time, and multiplication and division at the same time. 
Her suggested times table sequence is 2s, 10s, 5s, 3s, 4s, 9s, 6s, 7s and 8s. Learn to count the base 10 way. You can already be doing multiplication just by naming it. For example, 3 tens is 30. For word problems, the cognitive skills that you have, have to have are executive functioning, reasoning, planning the attention, decoding, semantics and syntax. Really complex. It's so important to help our children build their maths vocabulary and we can do this just by playing games when we're at the shops or reading books. We need automaticity in getting to 10, adding from 10, multiplication, count forwards and backwards, doubles and halves. However, it's not automaticity through memorization, it's automaticity through being able to reason. And also how important it is drawing diagrams for solving word problems. If you're wanting to learn more about what evidence-informed mathematics can look like, I've got a cool episode coming up where I'll be chatting to Kieran Mackle, host of the Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast and author of Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics, two resources that I highly recommend. We're going to do a switcheroo where he will be interviewing me for his podcast and I'll be interviewing him on what we think a structured math lesson can look like. So that should be fun. I do love hearing about the light bulb moments that you have from each episode. So keep the comments coming. So that's it from me for today. But as always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.